Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. I've been told my whole life I've got a face made for radio, so it's <laughs> All right, that's fine. Let's, well, Trent, welcome. Very, uh, it's good to, to, to talk to you again. You know, I talked to you at, I think it was Paleo Effects last year, and we had a great conversation talking about you know, sustainable ways to do animal agriculture, and you're doing some really neat things. So can you just kind of, for a uh, brief minute or two, kind of tell us a little bit about your background so, so uh, they can get an idea who we're talking to? Sure. So I've uh, got a fairly eclectic experience list, as many people do. But in hindsight, there's a common thread weaving through it all that helps it make some semblance of sense. And so, you know, I grew up in a home construction and, and rural, uh, real estate development family and didn't like it and wanted to be an ag my entire life. And uh, went to vet school for a little while and realized I'm not a conventional student and that wasn't working out. So we started, uh, we always, I always raised some animals and on the side and uh, just grew up on a very small farm in Pennsylvania and just started to explore and expand and started a trucking company hauling livestock and meat um, around the country and, and uh, then started to have a family and wanted to increase our side business into a more of a full-time endeavor and provide the food for my family. And that led us into the raw milk and Weston A. Price uh, area and started being cheesemakers and uh, just had a really dynamite uh, market outside of Philadelphia, New York City, and started to get some popularity for our products and awareness. And that led to some consulting gigs with people that wanted advice on how to do that themselves. And uh, we had a cheese plant and dairy and uh, our own butcher shop and retail and bakery all on site and uh, tried to make a little food Disneyland out of it. And uh, then had opportunities to go around the country and we ended up um, moving to Missouri Ozarks where we live now and have a ranch. And, um, you know, we started consulting for large food companies as well, helping them to identify emerging trends in farm to fork, uh, the regenerative movement, grass fed. And uh, so now we have our own ranch. We're producing all these things. We're working uh, on developing our own brands again. Uh, but all of this has led to our further involvement in the industry with Savory Institute, uh, American Grass Fed Association. I'm an advisor to both. And, um, We've become a Savory Institute hub, uh, an influencer hub, which is we spread the word about regenerative agriculture and using holistic management as a primary tool in utilizing and managing our natural resources. And that's led to additional opportunities uh, where we're doing prescription grazing uh, using livestock 
predominantly sheep and cattle, depending on the circumstance, to affect specific changes uh, or address specific problems in different environments. And one of the really exciting aspects of this project uh, is working with Silicon Ranch, which is a major uh, solar provider in the U.S., uh, which is uh, they're heavily involved with Shell Energy, one of the largest companies in the world, making a real push into what they're calling regenerative energy. And it is renewable energy, but it's grazing sheep and improving the soil under the solar arrays and creating the conditions that lead to sequestering more carbon and building the soil and the soil health that makes it regenerative. And so we're grazing in many states right now with thousands of sheep under solar panels, helping them create a regenerative energy. But in the process, we're keeping that land in food production and we're able to monitor the success of our grazing through the ecological outcome verification system that Savory Institute's developed uh, to be able to identify metrics that say, yes, the land is improving or not, as the case may be. And so it's just been this constant um, movement in this natural food agricultural world. And uh, so that's the, the nickel tour. Hey Trent, um, I, I, this is a really good topic, and I think it's one that uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of, uh, I guess you'd say naysayers. I, I, in fact, I just did a video. I talked with, uh, we had a guest on uh, uh, Stephen Zwick, who goes by the LA Chefs column on. I think maybe it was our last podcast, in fact, and we talked about the fact that there are people that say, you know, regenerative agriculture is just not the solution. It's not, it's not scalable. There's not enough land. Um, you know. The, the the studies that that actually you know maintain that that position that there's not enough land were were done by people that one one wasn't one guy wasn't a range scientist uh, he was a Harvard guy that that he's an animal activist and then the other one was a study that was comes from a guy who's got ties to Loma Linda University which you know is basically and and what and I guess the big error they're saying is they don't um, talk about the the potential uh, increase in carrying capacity. That is to say, if you look at, you know, what you're doing and other Savory Hub guys are doing, you know, guys like Will Harris, Joel Salatin, where they're saying that we can, you know, we can actually restore the, 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 the uh, ecosystem. We can make the land more productive. You know, we can, we can potentially run more animals uh, if we manage them correctly. Are you seeing any evidence that we can actually increase the carrying capacity uh, of what, what the land will produce, wh whether it be crop agriculture or animal agriculture? So that's a favorite subject of mine, and I can talk ad nauseum on that, so just shut me up whenever you want. Um, absolutely, 100%, without a doubt, we can, we will, we have, and we're going to do some more. That is the selling point to land managers, to land stewards, to ranchers, farmers, that is the selling point. It's not a premium driven market. I've been in the natural food space for decades and before there was a push to certifications and when grazing came to dairy in the 80s and 90s from New Zealand, it was about a lower cost of production, not about a grass fed premium. It came from a producer mentality, a management practice. And thanks to Joe Robinson and Sally Fallon and 
uh, Joel Salatin and Alan Nations and some of these other early adopters and, and public speakers on the value of grass-fed that ultimately culminated in a premium model and that attracted a lot of adopters over to grass-fed production. However, they either didn't have the skill set, the genetics, the know-how, the um, natural resources, et cetera. And so they started bringing in supporting practices to achieve a grass-fed model, i.e. importing alfalfa hay from halfway across the country and other practices, and they needed a premium to justify their cost of production. We lost our way. And then coming into, you know, 2010, in the last five, 10 years, we've gone into certification overload. We got a certification for everything, including absurd ones, you know, claiming that something isn't in a product that couldn't naturally have it in there in the first place, but people have become so weak-minded, they don't know how to think anymore. So we need a certification to tell them whether or not they can buy something. I mean, we've just, just gone so far. And that's the beauty of the regenerative model. And that's why there's a little bit of pressure against regenerative from vested interests, multinational food companies, ag companies, because there's nothing to sell. They can't sell seed, genetics, equipment, trucks, tractors, you name it. There's nothing to sell to produce regenerative food. The change is between our ears. There's a, a knowledge base, and thankfully, many of the early practitioners in regenerative believe in an open source model where people share freely. That's why we're an influencer hub. We want to spread the word and help people understand. There are other hubs that are going to do more of the training and education of the actual producers. Our goal is to help spread the word because it's not about chasing a certification. We have validation metrics to ensure that we're doing well, but it's about outcomes only. And yes, uh, for example, the ranch I'm on right now, we have increased the carrying capacity of this ranch by over fourfold in five years. Uh, it was highly degraded. And, you know, as a caveat, yes, we did import uh, nutrients onto this farm because we were milking goats and we were bringing a lot of um, hay onto the site and using a lot of sawdust bedding, which we composted and put out on the field. So we jump-started the regenerative process which is completely fine. You know, the results, again, it's all about the outcomes, but we're not using synthetic chemicals, fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, et cetera, because that works in opposition of a regenerative holistic model. And so that is the number one selling point. I tell producers all the time, and I tell food companies as well, there should be a premium for early adopters to incentivize, but that should be gravy for doing a job well done. The real motivation is to manage our resources better so they produce more. That's what regenerative is. You know, it's natural capitalism. It's, you know, two plus two equals five, not four in a regenerative model. If it only equals four, it's called sustainable. It's not called regenerative. And so only when we produce greater then the cost of production, is it truly regenerative? Whether it's in our business model, our finances, our retirement account, or how we manage land and natural resources, it needs to produce more than the cost of production or we don't continue the model. And that's really the essence of why regenerative is the only solution that is going to reverse the impact of negative 
behaviors and management practices, short-term linear thinking. Um, we need to take that multi-generational view and say, okay, we created some problems. Good news is we can fix them. The first way to fix them is to stop doing bad and then start doing good. And we can turn this thing around in a heartbeat. It's really exciting. And we're seeing it every day uh, on the lands that we influence and on our client lands and so forth. This is real. It's happening. And we've moved to a point, and I suspect you run into this uh, on your personal mission on a regular basis, is the naysayers want to come back with science. And we have the science. But we've moved to a point where we put science above common intelligence and that's the the benefit of this regenerative model is yeah we can back up science all day long but that's just there as a validation the reality is is we're on the ground with our animals every day and we see the improvements we inherently know the improvements we're selling more pounds of beef or lamb off the ranch every year we're having more animals get settled into pregnancy and more live animals being born and more live animals making it to weaning age and so on and so forth. Those are real metrics that, you know, science just chooses to ignore because it becomes too big because most scientists don't think holistically. And so we have to look at these problems holistically and then we have to look at the solutions holistically. And, and that's why this regenerative is the only model that will get us there. And I give an example of to help people who aren't familiar with this space to really understand what regeneration is all about. So here it is. You could take the very best topsoil in corn country, Iowa, where science tells us for every pound of corn produced, two pounds of topsoil is lost. And that ground may be 10 plus feet deep of rich black topsoil where everything grows and they get bumper crops. But at two pounds of topsoil per pound of corn produced, plus all the other degrading aspects, that land, however fertile, is not regenerative. Doubtful it's even sustaining. It's degrading. There's less of it and less vitality year over year. On the opposite side, I could take an abandoned parking lot and the cracks will begin and plants will begin to grow in those cracks. It is not fertile soil, very little grows, but it has begun to regenerate. That's what nature does. When we stop doing bad, nature tries to heal itself. And so as long as we continue to drop tons of chemicals and till the soil and, you know, go for short-term extractive production methods, we're going to have a degrading environment, which leads to concerns about food security and economic vitality of our rural communities, et cetera, et cetera. But when we just stop doing bad, those abandoned parking lots begin the regenerative process. And we can use our tools uh, all the tools at our disposal, which we have many in holistic management, to create the conditions that lead to that regeneration process having unimpeded opportunities. And so um, that's the beauty of this. It doesn't take a huge amount of money. I mean, you can use it. Money is a tool. We can use that to uh, speed things up, much like I mentioned with my own property where we did bring fertility onto 
our property and, and we saw immediate benefits of bringing that vitality onto this, the property and, and just increasing the response time and, and creating a force multiplier effect. That being said, you know, it's using what you have where you are right now to make the difference. And, you know, another little side tangent um, is we have conferences virtually every day all year long now with regenerative in some fashion as a theme. And typically it's the same people flying all over the country, telling each other how amazing they are and dreaming up schemes of what other people should do to make a difference in the world. And nothing actually gets done other than the greenwash the hell out of their brands. But there are a lot of people, some of them you've named, um, that are out there quietly actually being the difference on the land that they influence every day. And those are the champions that need the support um, because they're the ones actually making the difference. Yeah, Trent, you know, the input stuff is really interesting. And I think when I try to put myself like in the, in the shoes of say a farmer who's got like a conventional agricultural setup. And I think like if I saw that and then I saw how many inputs I was doing, I would crave that type of a setup. And then it kind of becomes like a question of, well, what kind of hurdles would I need to get over in order to get myself in a position to even be able to utilize that low input setup, like what you have. And then I start to think about like, well, then as a society, we need to somehow make it profitable in a way for the farmer to be able to get to that place or put some, some things in place. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like what you know about some incentives and stuff like similar to maybe the Savory Institute that is available for farmers, like resources. Cause I was thinking of outside of the box type things. Like uh, if we have such degraded soil, you know, we have a need for these, these roaming herds of ruminants to help heal that process. Is there any sort of uh, ideas or plans in place to essentially outsource your herd or maybe nomad with your herd and go to some of these places and just work on the main goal of being regenerate these soils? Yes, that's the short answer. And we're doing that. Um, For example, you know, we're moving flocks of sheep all over the mid middle part of this country uh, right now today, providing those grazing services. And we try to balance it. So uh, we're having a regenerative impact on the land. And yet we're also building uh, a feed supply to grow the flock and improve the conditions. So that absolutely is being done. And 2019 is a terrific example of you know, the catastrophic consequences of our choices in food production and food consumption, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, we'll try to be unbiased, but, you know, in the last six months, um, I've put 35,000 miles on my pickup truck, primarily in the Midwest, uh, from Minnesota to Texas, from Georgia to Colorado. And right up through, I do a tremendous amount of grazing work in what we call the Mississippi Delta or the the Ohio Valley. 
and that is a huge, huge grain production area of the country. And I drive by these operations, typically with a trailer with 250 sheep behind me um, as part of this prescriptive grazing process. And we can talk about the environmental impact of that as well, because I'm sure someone will say, well, that's a lot of miles to go do regenerative grazing. And, and it's true, it is. Um, but again, it's about outcomes, net outcomes. Um, and I drive by these large, large grain operations, thousands and thousands of acres, and I see uh, fields that are tiled, which tiled means that they have, you know, in-ground drainage systems so that farmers can drive heavy equipment on them earlier in the season before, while the soils would otherwise have been wet so they can get their plant cro uh, their crop planted early. In a floodplain with an irrigation pivot on the same ground and driving up uh, the Missouri River this summer, I saw floodplains with tiles, irrigation pivots, grain bins, and the grain bins were burst open because the flooding uh, impacted the dry grain within and it swelled and burst the grain bins. And I'm thinking, is there a better example of the insanity of modern food and agriculture? I'm not sure there is. It's absolutely ridiculous how far we've gone. And cheap food policies, post-World War II, there's been a lot of incentives for farmers to do silly things. There's taxpayer dollars that fund um, so-called advances. And yet, years ago, those the reason there's good topsoil there is because we had a prairie environment with you know, a, a complex animal system focusing around large herbivores and their predators and the support species around them this entire ecosystem is what created the fertility of that environment. And as we look at the amount of land, back to Sean's comment, is, is there enough land to do all this? Well, hell yes, there is. When we look at, this is, you know, branching out into the whole food consumption and vegan, vegetarian versus carnivore, which I am, is we look at the amount of food produced, the amount of true nutrition produced on this land, versus our consumption needs, and then all the transportation, the packaging, the waste, the methods to manage waste around all these processes, we, a lot of this corn is going into biofuels. A lot of this corn is going into feedlots. If we literally just grazed the animals on the same acreage, we could produce more net nutrition for humans with the same amount of land. And I go by these large grain farms, and they have literally millions of dollars worth of equipment. How do young people get involved today when a combine might cost $700,000 to a million dollars for one combine that maybe runs three weeks out of the year? And then the tractors and the planters and on and on and on and on. And we have all this new smart farming, precision farming technology where we don't plant the headlands anymore. The headlands are the, the areas around the perimeter of the field where you used to plant in opposition. You plant the middle of the field in straight rows and then you plant a couple circles around the outside. It's called the headlands. Today, we don't do that. We stop in these jagged rows that look like a staircase on its side and we spray them to keep the weeds out because apparently that's more efficient. I mean, there, it's a very scientific way of farming, but there is a lot of land, productive land, that's not actually in food production. 
it's, you know, a byproduct, it's a hazard. And, you know, there's just all of these variables that if we would just stop perpetuating the insanity, and this is another element of regeneration that is just so many people struggle with is we are so short-sighted and narrow-minded this myopic approach and we don't do a root cause analysis we actually need to start that as free thinkers free people we need to start thinking about a root cause analysis we're always running around with band-aids trying to fix the temporary problem rather than asking ourselves why do we require a band-aid well the obvious answer is because you have an ouchie well why do we have an ouchie and keep going back until we can solve the problem at the root. Uh, if you want to put a fire out, you don't spray the flames, you spray the coals. And we just need to start taking, you know, a more logical approach. But of course, thanks to the dietary choices of so many people, they have lost the ability to do that kind of strategic thinking. And so that's why I'm just so excited to be able to participate in some small way in this whole um, model that you guys are promoting because I think it's a key element. If we're going to make these larger changes, first, we need to clear people's minds and get them thinking correctly. And when we first started retailing um, back in the late 90s and people would come in and they just tell us these incredible stories of when they started drinking raw milk and they started eating fermented foods and grass-fed meats and raw butter and raw cheese and all this exciting stuff and how all these things, it was kind of creepy after a while because they were telling me way too much information about themselves, uh, but they were excited. And it's like they would come to a raw milk dairy only after they ran out of other alternatives and they got their life back. And it was exciting to see um, their responses and we just need to continue to fan those flames and, and that's gonna drive the change. Hey Trent, I mean, I like the fact, you know, you, you make an analogy, which I mean about, you know, treating the, treating the root cause and not putting on bandage. We see the same thing in the healthcare industry. I mean, it's the same, same sort of situation. We don't, we don't, we don't look holistically. And I think there's a great analogy between the two things. Um, I saw, and I've seen this before, but I just kind of reminded myself, there's a concern that the soil that we have, the top soil we have in, on planet earth is, you know, as you said, continually being degraded by our current uh, high volume industrialized agricultural practice, which is input herbicide, pesticide, so on and so forth, um, that we have maybe 60 years of, of harvest left until we run out of soil. And it's not that we, it's not the question is, can we do regenerative agriculture or should we do regenerative agriculture? It sounds like we must do it. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's, if, if we're sensible about it and we look at this, people are worried about the environment, you know, see this all the time and they sort of, sort of try to put in, you know, methane from cows is, is a, a major thing that's destroying the world. But I mean, it's just, as you and I know, that's not even close to being anywhere near the truth. But we're seeing that, you know, a real agricultural issue is it seems to be this soil thing. And, and do you do you find that, uh, so when you say there's science behind it, I mean, I, I know there's guys like Richard Richard Teague does some, does some research, I think, at A&M University, Texas A&M University, looking at uh, AMP grazing, you know, adaptive multi-pad grazing. I think there's another guy there, maybe it's Alan Williamson. Talk a little bit about this, the soil and the science that you say there is science. So I'd like to hear that so people can look it up and maybe we can include some of those in the show notes that I can put them in there so people can look this up and say, hey, there is science. So can we, can we talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. And uh, Teague that you mentioned clearly uh, is doing great work. 
A um, couple of guys, Jason Roundtree and Matt Raven up at Michigan State University are doing phenomenal work. Um, they actually uh, heavily contributed to creating the ecological outcome verification system that Savory Institute is using um, and, and has created. And so there are a lot of players um, that are doing good work, you know, and there's a lot of producers like Will Harrison, Gabe Brown, Spencer Smith out of California. There's, there's just a lot more people doing good than the public is aware of. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people today are talking about carbon and, and there may be some carbon value uh, in the future. Um, it's very variable and expensive to measure and there's a lot of people working on trying to make that more consistent and lower costs and better yields. Um, the science, that's not my speciality. I'm not a soil scientist. Um, I'm a practitioner and I like to think I'm a little bit of a free thinker and, and I like to share my passion with other people and get them excited. Uh, so I would want to defer, you know, the deep science because I know just enough to make it sound like I know more than I do. Um, and I don't want smarter people than I to be able to point out my shortcomings in that area. Um, I'm much more observationally oriented personally. Uh, I know what I know. I know what I see. I know the results. Um, and so that's more of the take that I apply. Um, and that's the benefit of the ecological outcome verification model from Savory is that it combines both. It's soil metrics, you know, we do water um, penetration, you know, the speed at which the water, the soil absorbs water and holds water versus running off. Uh, we look at plant spacing, spacing, the density of plants, uh, the health and vitality of those plants, the species diversity of those plants. We look at the different critters, bugs, ants, spiders, uh, you name it. We look at what wind and water erosion does to the surface of the soil. We look at how the soil, the vegetation from previous growing seasons is breaking down. We have trending brittle or trending non-brittle, which uh, non-brittle would be in a rainforest at one end and brittle would be um, pure sand at the other end. And we try to determine so we can build expectations around what our management practices will do on the outcome. And we'll do, for example, a transit where we could have uh, at least 300 points of observation uh, in a single transit and we compile all that data. It is observational at one level, but the sheer number of data points uh, make it statistically viable. And then we compare that over multiple sites on a single property and we look at those sites. We, we blend all that information, short and long-term monitoring, uh, short term would be the improvements in plant species, desirable versus undesirable, um, how quickly vegetation is decomposing and breaking down the activity of animals, et cetera, versus long term, which would be organic matter building in the soil. And we compile all that into an ecological index health number. And then we look at that number year over year. And if that number is improving, we say the land is regenerating. Um, and there's going to be some variables such as a drought, um, you know, extremely tough winter, things of that nature, too much rain as in 2019 for a lot of parts of the green country. Um, and we take those into consideration at the quality assurance level, but that's, that's where observation and science meet. Um, it takes both the, the practical um, stewardship as well as balancing that out with the statistical 
strength of observation points and the science of organic or carbon uh, within the soil and we find that balance. So we have a lot of really brilliant people bringing their own genius, you know, and applying it. And some may be in the lab, some are going to be on the land, um, and some are going to be consumers voting with their dollars that create the opportunity for us to do more. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Let me, um, let's talk about water because that's another one. Uh, you know, you could, you talked about, uh, you know, water uh, re- retention in the land because we see drought. I'm in California. We have fires constantly. You know, I think some of it has to do with the soil condition probably contributing to, you know, the, the, the quality of the land there. Um, you know, what, what can regenerative agriculture do for, you know, I mean, there's all this sort of, uh, you know, propaganda that we hear that to produce a pound of meat, it takes like, you know, 7 million gallons. You know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but it's just these <laughs> obviously conflated numbers, which are generally rainfall numbers. But talk to us about regenerative agriculture and, and how that can 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 impact the water, water table, water usage, you know, the soil, water, sequestration, uh, and stuff like that. Sure. And I want to, if I can, step back just a little bit more. And, you know, because water and air quality and food quality and very, very, very important, you know, different sides of the same cube in many ways. And, you know, all this comes into the whole concept of climate change. And I may ostracize myself in this process, but I I really want to make a point is that people spend too much time. I mean, I often say, boy, I wish we'd go back to the day where we use sex to sell things instead of fear. Um, You know, everybody's beating this fear drum today. And quite frankly, I think it's gone so far that, you know, the element of raising awareness was made. But now it's gone to the point of driving despair and hopelessness and inaction, and that's a problem. And I really want to shift the dialogue to we created these problems. You know, man is not so important that we can change the earth indefinitely, but we can scratch the surface and mess it up, but we can also fix it. And so I'd much rather talk about stewardship of our natural resources because that makes it a personal responsibility. Again, back to the talking heads that fly all over the world, tell everybody else what they should be doing with their life is actually, what are we doing personally? How did I allow this to happen? What am I doing today to make that difference? And so when we stop that short-term extractive thinking, it allows us to put these better 
better take more of the energy away from talking about scary things and depressing things and actually ignite hope in every individual because the individual is empowered to drive this change. And why, why do I say that now? It comes back to all these variables. The issues in California, you know, spin the needle anywhere in the country, in the world, you know, largely are impacted by the choices we make as individuals uh, at the collective level. And so wildfires, you know, if we were using animals correctly, if we would stop some of these short-term environmental policies that remove animals, you know, there are so many examples in holistic management where removing animals has created worse conditions than even incorrect animal management. And nature is not single in any way. Everything in nature is holes within holes of ever greater magnitude of holes. And so when we take our short-term human perspective and think that we actually have some serious um, role and power on this planet and say, that, you know, we're going to reverse this or change that, you know, it's, it's really hubris. And we need to stop thinking that way and say, you know what, the choices I make today, whether it's bottled water, you know, whether it's, you know, 72 ingredients in a plant-based, you know, yuck, whatever, is, is really breaking those, those walls, those self-imposed limiting factors. And the water issue is so critical. And I bring it up now because we think that we're going to create more water or less water or more energy or less energy. And really it's all about the flow. And what are we doing with it while it's within our influence? Because control is an illusion. The best we can hope to do with increased knowledge and awareness and skill sets and understanding is to influence conditions that lead to the outcomes we prefer. Uh, but we don't control them. Uh, and when we try, Mother Nature, we can never outspend her. She will always win in the end. And so on water, it's the goal of water is to capture it where it lands and hold it there as long as possible. And when it leaves, let it leave as pure water as when it fell. So an example, uh, this is an anecdotal observational example. When we first moved to this property, uh, we've been in the Ozarks about 10 years, but we've been on this property less than five. And we would get a cloudburst and we would have water shedding off this property in brown rivers in almost immediately. And now today we can get we've gotten multiple times this year, we've gotten over five inches in a day and a half and we don't even have cooling at all unless it's a runoff from like a roof or a driveway or something. And then it's clear water. That is a phenomenal change. We're absorbing inches of water per hour on our land due exclusively to how we've managed that land. You know, the animal impact, improving plant species, it opens up the land as the roots die off and vegetation uh, is decomposing and we have all the little critters doing their job and living in their little world. Um, so by um, biology in practice, it increases the penetration rate of the water and the absorption of that water. So we are holding the water and while my neighbor's places are burning off in a six week dry spell, our pastures are staying green. And because they graze until it's nubbins right down like a golf course, the sun and the wind hit that soil and cause capping. 
which is when it dries out and becomes so hard that water bounces off or sheets off the side. And any loose matter on top of that goes with the water. Whereas our grasses, we don't take them that short. We keep it tall. So there's a microclimate at the soil surface level. And that creates that habitat where there's decomposition. There's a lot of thatch. So when the water can't run off, even when uh, we've got very heavy rainfall, it slows it down. We can absorb it. We hold it. And because we have that microclimate and that water holding capability, our grasses continue to be healthy and green long after the rain stops. And uh, again, it's all about, you know, use whatever term you like. It all comes down to better stewardship of our resource. You can call it holistic management, holistic plant grazing, adaptive, you know, rotational. Everybody's trying to sell a book these days. And so they come up with their own term. At the end of the day, it's all about managing and stewarding our resources more wisely and compassionately. Trent, kind of a quick side question, because uh, I do think it's really interesting when you talk about like the grass height even, because I think a lot of times when people think about that, they're thinking about like the root depth, the, the roots depth and things like that. Um, but when you describe like the scenario where the ruminants are eating the grass down to a nub, like a golf course, and you kind of want to avoid that level of, of uh, grazing, what is the, is there a standard kind of protocol of length that you're kind of looking for before they start kind of pushing the herd off to another patch? Yes and no. And again, this is what's interesting is it's a good question. I'm going to take it apart a little bit and it's not personal. It's a good example. If I may, is because that is exactly the way the human mind wants to respond to these issues. We want to be told how to do it. We want to buy a book. We want to go to a class. We want to have this little cheat sheet we keep in our breast pocket where we can pull it out. You know, people over the years have even been selling special rulers and yardsticks and stuff to help people measure, make the decision. And, you know, we're doing now satellite imagery to try to identify plant mass. And it's like, folks, stop. Stop trying to come up with a formula. You know, God gave us a brain. We got eyes. We have feelings. We have sensory capabilities, and that's the beauty of holistic management. And managing holistically and naturally is understanding that it is not prescriptive in a single formula. It's being on the land, in the land, with the land, with our animals, and observing their needs. There's all the balances. You know, is it a dry cow? In other words, is she not milking to feed a calf, and yet maybe she's not pregnant, or she's just pregnant and her nutritional needs are very low? we can rough her a little further. We can make her work a little harder to drive a little more change for the land. If it's a cow that's about to give birth or just gave birth and is milking out to feed a calf, she has a high nutritional demand. So we don't want to make her work very hard. We want to make it easy for her to eat all the right stuff of the right kind, the right quantity, so that she's productive and feeds that calf and gets enough condition back on so she rebreeds on time. And you know, we want that cow to have a calf every year and the ability for her to do so is directly linked to her nutrition, and her nutrition is linked to the health of the land. As ranchers, we inherently know this while we're munching on our Snickers and Doritos and wondering why the heck we're getting old and feeling like shit. Um, you know, it's just so crazy that we understand these areas myopically and we don't apply them holistically in our own lives. So, you know, is there a prescription to it? Um, you know, it's the classical answer. It depends. 
And this is one of the interesting side notes to take one step further that we've been working with as we're developing our uh, grazing services under solar particularly is because the primary priority of a solar property is to harness the sunlight in voltaic panels. And yet we're harvesting the same light using photosynthesis. And so I look at it saying, you know, we're not going to graze this field until later. It's going to be feed for our animals next month. And then it gets over a certain height and it begins to shade out the solar panel. That's a problem. So, you know, we have to first meet the needs of the solar company, which is to keep vegetation at bay. In fact, our contracts are called vegetation management contracts. Uh, we just happen to use animals as the tool to manage that vegetation. Whereas on our own uh, ranch lands and fields, we would want to stockpile that seed for different times of the year to meet different purposes. And so, for example, when the grass is growing very fast and what we call the spring uh, flush, when everything's just growing very quickly, we want to move the animals very fast across that land uh, so that we're just managing the grass, we're keeping it out of putting seed heads up and so forth and we want to move quickly across that grass. The faster the grass is growing, the faster you move your animals. The slower the grass is growing, the slower you move your animals. So in August, in my part of the country, we might want to beat that up if we think we're going to get fall rains so that it can really grow. Or we can take a stockpiled feed in the dead of winter and we can graze it really tight and hard because we're putting all that fertility right back on that land and it's going to grow in the spring flush. And so there's just different times of the year, the different nutritional requirements of the land, um, and also to um, the combination of animal performance and land performance. We can have lower animal performance if we're trying to enhance the land performance. We can have greater land performance if we jeopardize the animal performance. The key is to find the balance between it all. And we're able to do that. And that's why it's so important in holistic management to set up a context. A context is essentially uh, our goals and the operating methods to achieve those goals. And we create something called a future resource base. What do we want this land to look like in five years, in 20 years? And then we create a management plan that favors achieving that future resource base. And it really, it's, there's, there's a lot of different programs that teach us strategic thinking and, and how to put management practices together. The savory model um, just happens to be the one that we favor because it's one of the only ones that was created with natural resource management as a primary objective. And it's since then, you know, spread out further because the principle, that's another key point I like to make is Regeneration today has become a bit of a greenwashed buzzword, unfortunately. Uh, I still believe in it. It's the only thing that's going to make a difference and have any real legs to continue on. But regeneration is not just about managing natural resources. It's actually about a way of life. It's how do we interact in our personal relationships? How do we manage our finances? How do we behave? How do we make our purchasing decisions? We can either have a degrading practice, a sustainable practice, or a regenerative practice. And this is why I encourage the individual to really think deeply about their own life and their own choices. And not everything's going to be perfect. It's okay. It's about progress, not perfection. Uh, perfection's an illusion anyway. 
Um, and so it's about what choices can we make each day that favor the outcomes we desire, like not having a beer because, you know, I want to look like Sean when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was a great example of kind of like the human mind and how it goes to that desire to standardize and normalize things to the extent where we kind of know what's expected or we see what's coming and have that kind of peace of mind. And, you know, I kind of think about that in a couple ways. Like the one is, uh, you know, that's a hurdle for like the, the adaptive multi-paddock grazing setup is this like this difference from spot to spot. But then I also think of it in other ways. It's actually also kind of a cool challenging thing too, where if you kind of gamify that in a way where you excite kind of another generation or a younger generation of folks to saying, hey, here's a puzzle to solve and it's going to be different wherever you are. So, you know, here's some supports in place to kind of help you get started, but ultimately you're going to want to solve that puzzle and really specify it to the area you're in and within the context that it comes up in. Mm -hmm. Cool. Sean, did I cut you off before? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I do have, a, I do have a, uh, um, yeah, this is something, uh, Trent, you know, there's a lot of sort of just in a general population and certainly there's people that are animal rights activists and, vegan proponents and you know, they talk about the meat industry and they say the meat industry is horrible and does all these awful things. And I, and I think, you know, certainly there's some validity to what they say about some, some of the way they think, but I think what I see, you know, just looking back at this and been, you know, just kind of watching this as, a, as an outside observer, but that has a vested interest in this stuff just from my own health standpoint. Um, I think that we, we, we have to realize that the meat industry is not necessarily what you'd, you're not necessarily the meat industry, even though the product you produce ultimately ends up being meat on our table, but the meat industry, you know, and, and what I see is, is a big dichotomy between the ranchers and particularly guys like you that's trying to do it the right way. And we've got, you know, Tyson Foods, Cargill Foods, JBS. These guys are, you know, what I consider the meat industry and they're, they're, it's all about profit. It's all about, you know, turning, turning a profit as quickly as it can. It's, you know, I mean, you see them investing in, you know, their fake meat divisions They're obviously once it comes along their synthetic meat division, um, do you, do you see that there's a dichotomy between ranchers and, and, and these types of folks, or is it all just, you know, my understanding when I spoke with us Cattlemen's association, that there is definitely some friction between the two groups. Are you, do you, do you see that as well? Yes. And I, I, it's it's a shame quite frankly you know again it comes back to the human condition is the vast majority and this is another one of my uh, favorite talking points is the abundance mentality versus the scarcity mentality and the default mode for the vast majority of humans is a scarcity mentality you know if you want to go back to you know, the theory of a primitive man, you know, he, he, he doesn't want his neighbor to come out of his cave and beat me over the head and steal my dinosaur and my wife, uh, you know, so he can feed his family and add to his family. And so we want to defend and protect the little that we have. And that's the scarcity mentality. The, the idea of abundance is that there is more than enough for all of us and collective cooperation um, in a regenerative way ensures it. Whereas a scarcity mentality virtually always results in that which we are afraid of. You know, if there's enough negative talk about the stock market and the economy, ultimately they will bring about the negative correction that they're scared of. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's all emotion based. And so when we look at 
and, and this is the absurdity of the food industry, and I am sure it applies to many other industries as well is, you know, and I'm heavily involved, so I'm speaking from an insider's perspective here is instead of collectively cooperating on a position for animal agriculture, we waste our energy talking not only about grass-fed versus grain-fed, but which grass-fed certification is better than the other grass-fed certification. And, you know, the, the, the unfortunate people who are misguided enough to think plants are the future are sitting back laughing at us, fighting over this micro detail. And I really strongly, it's, it's a platform I try to share from on a very regular basis as often as I'm able is we need to start working on the 85% we agree on and stop focusing on the 15% or 5% or whatever percent it is that we're not 100% aligned on. And that's a problem. We have so much more in common with the feedlot industry than we do with the plant industry, which, you know, people are very critical of me for saying because they say, well, actually, for the really grass-fed regenerative model, the plant eaters are probably better consumer choices for us than, you know, your Walmart steak eater. And I say, baloney. I mean, why? Why are we, why are we prejudging what people may or may not want? Why aren't we doing our best to make it all better? Because we can have a greater impact on our environment and ensuring future generations optimal success, the ability to thrive by shifting the needle slightly on the macro versus making a bigger move on the micro. If we can get more people, you know, maybe we're not going to eradicate feedlots anytime soon. And maybe that's good, maybe it's bad, it doesn't matter. If we can make the cattle heavier going into the feedlot because they spend more time on well-managed pastures, the impact on the environment is phenomenal. You know, we have grain finishing for a reason. It was because people wanted to eat that baby fat beef decades ago and they could do it all year long if they fed them some corn. And post-World Wars, when the chemical model of farming came online and cheap food policies and subsidies, it shifted the needle. It wasn't always that way. You know, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, when he was ranching out in South Dakota, uh, I was reading one of his biographies recently, and, you know, it was un until the, the winter of, I think it was 87 and 88 and 1800s, uh, where so many uh, ranchers lost their livelihood and animals perished. It was just a terrible winter. Um, but prior to that, cattle were coming from all over the country to build large ranching operations in there. And one of the quotes of one of the famous cattlemen is roughly, the grass there is so valuable because it fattens cattle as good as it does when you feed them corn. And that was a comment from like 1880. So, you know, this isn't new. This isn't something that we're, we're recently discovering. It's really about the business of creating people food from our natural resources in an economically viable way. And that's where, um, you know, in, in, with the threat of politicizing this is we have government interaction with subsidies and various other tools at their disposal that has impacted the way we view food and food production. And we don't have a true, fair, uh, balanced playing field 
when it comes to food production. And so we have these these various programs. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric this year about um, as a result of tariffs and the impact that it had on food production and farm economies in this country. Well, as a um, niche food producer, I don't see any of the benefit of government payouts. I wouldn't take them anyway, matter of principle and pride, quite frankly. But nonetheless, none of those offered um, payments from the government make their way to a grass farmer. They go to corn and soybean um, monopolies, large confinement hog monopolies. Um, you know, it, it becomes a, a very, very different system. Um, probably don't want to go too deep in that direction, but if we're going to talk about food and the impact of how we produce food, we need to, again, peel the layers back to the root cause of why do we have these problems? And it's not grass-fed versus grain-fed. You know, that's a symptom. And as a doctor, I'm sure that you could speak eloquently on that subject. Um, you know, it's we can continue to set broken bones, but at some point it probably behooves us to look at why we're breaking bones in the first place. Is it environment? Is it nutrition? Is it combination? Or is the, the subject just an idiot and they need to be put in a padded cell for the rest of their life? You know, what, what is the true cause of these problems? And we're not going to solve them unless we stop pretending that the symptoms are the problem. Today, many of our food companies and brands and just organizations in general look at process as the product. You know, the cubicle dwellers and sit there and, and look myopically at their individual narrow subject and they want to justify their involvement, their importance, their paycheck, whatever it is that they're fearful of, they have to spend time defending it. And so we waste countless hours, human hours, financial resources, things we can't get back readily in defending symptoms. And again, this message is far greater, in my opinion, than the actual practices of resource management and dietary choice. It's actually going back to why are we dealing with these problems in the first place and what is the correct way to address these problems to have the maximum return on investment uh, possible if that makes any sense. No, it, it does make sense. And I, I'm just, it's interesting, you know, talking about because, you know, I mean, to be honest, a lot of people prefer grain-fed beef because of the fat, the flavor profile. And a lot of people, the criticism of grass-fed beef is it's too, it's, it's, it's not fat enough, it's too lean. And it's interesting you say that if you go back far enough in time when you have more, I guess, productive soil, more productive grass, that you can get that same sort of fat ratio, which I think is, is, is kind of, uh, you know, an interesting thing. Talk to me about, um, you know, there's people now, you know, we're talking about a solution, which, you know, you and I both would agree is probably the, the right thing to do. But there's, there are people out there, and it seems like more people than not, or there's more, there's more, there's more advocacy for this is that we're just going to, uh, you know, kind of get away from animal agriculture, and we're going to shift to a plant based, uh, plant based system, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to grow some meat in a factory, and we're going to, we're going to eat, uh, you know, a bunch of pea protein and supplement it because that's what we can do need to do and that's that's environmentally sustainable what do you have any criticisms about that particular uh proposal yeah i actually do have a few opinions on that subject um i think the plant-based uh alternative meat 
concept is a bubble. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a scam. It's retarded. Um, you know, it's this is the modern scenario of humanity is that we don't need facts anymore. Emotion, how you feel, trumps reality, and it's just retarded. We are so freaking lost, it's not funny. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, but this big move, this is about influencing people. This is about shifting civilization. And, you know, the idea of a well-fed, healthy citizenry, we should look at it as an asset. But quite frankly, I think there's a lot of interest that look at it as a detriment because strong, independent people are not easily controlled. But you get these weak people who are constantly fearful and, you know, defending their little scraps of whatever they think they have in this scarcity mentality. Oh, shoot. They're easy to control. I mean, we're only three uh, days, nine meals from anarchy. You know, the, the, the um, resources that are focusing on emergency management, food security uh, is a big, big issue. I've spoken with several groups that are, um, have large responsibilities in this area. And, you know, these, these people that are fearful, they don't plan ahead, they're not healthy, they make incorrect choices. Um, you know, it's just insane where we've gone. And some of these emotional diatribes that the non-meat eating crowd focuses on, it's almost like, wow, they're so lost, there's almost nothing that can be done to, to correct their thinking, which is why I'm uh, such a supporter of the work you're doing because you're calling it out and it's absolutely critical. I know you get people that say, ah, oh, you're too mean. Uh, well, fine, but you know what? You are saying no to the bullshit. And it's critical that we have strong voices stating that opposition um, because I do think that the tide is actually already turning. Um, here's, a, here's a key insight. When big food starts investing in a new trend, you know it's over. I mean, they're the last people to, you know, pull their heads out of their wacko and, uh, you know, this is where it's going. So, you know, it, 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 the plant movement's gonna hang in there for a little while, but not for long. We have any kind of economic challenge, geopolitical challenge, environmental challenge, there's nothing to sustain the plant model. It doesn't work. It flat doesn't work. Why is it that we expect career politicians to change the government that they created? Why is it we expect multinational food companies to provide viable change and opportunity for the future when they're the ones who created the problems that we currently have? You know, it's a dog returning to its vomit. Why do we think that the people who created the problem are going to be the people to solve the problem. It's never happened in history. It's not going to happen in the future. We need to do a reset. We need a, a fresh way of thinking. We need to stop, you know, people, economic advisors, number one, first thing you do when you're in debt, and you want to get out of debt, stop digging the hole deeper. Before you can worry about filling it in, stop digging the hole deeper. And today, we're just trying to use a different shovel to keep digging deeper. You know, it's plant-based this and plant-based that. Well, I make my living in agriculture. You know, there's not a tremendous number of people today that pay all of their bills from food production and managing natural resources. Um, there are a number, but it's a small section of society. So I think I have, a, you know, a pretty strong voice in this 
whole discussion about what works and doesn't work. And I'm here to tell you today, the grain model, no matter how we do it, there are ways to produce grain that are less negatively impactful than conventional. And I applaud that shift because not everybody's gonna go to carnivore anytime soon. So the first thing we need to do is reduce the negative impact of producing food this way. Get people to eat a little bit better diet. That's one of the beautiful things as we're developing our grazing uh, program is to be able to start grazing in cover crops. So now we're gonna use animals to help lower the negative environmental impact of vegetarian and vegan eating practices. Um, I think there's a certain irony to that whole model, um, but we're, we're doing our part to help them in spite of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously I'm in this uh, because I'm, I'm doing it for people's, what I think is the right thing for people's health. You know, and people are thinking that, you know, I'm trying to kill people by telling them to eat, eat meat and the exact opposite is what's happening there. Uh, let me ask you, because I know I, I talked to you, like I said, it was, you know, six months ago or so I met you and you were switching over to a, you know, carnivorous type diet. How has that impacted you personally, just as a personal anecdote? That's a lot of fun. So um, first, thank you. Um, you know, I've always eaten very well, uh, raw foods, natural foods, the Weston A. Price kind of diet, make my own sourdough bread. I mean, done all that stuff and got to thinking that I will struggle with my weight and always thought, well, it's just a calorie in, calorie out kind of deal. Um, and then I did, you know, once a day and, and all these other variables and then paleo and started carving out all these things and seeing some, monu uh, some, some micro changes, you know. Uh, went hardcore keto and, you know, had a first weight shed and then just flatlined. And uh, this spring, you know, in, in large part to your dis discussions with you, completely ditched it. And I'm like 98% carnivore now. I have trouble giving up my booze and dark chocolate. But other than that, I'm hardcore carnivore. I only eat things that had a mama. And my health has never been better uh, even when I was in my 20s and running and lifting a lot of weights, I didn't have the, the health and energy that I have now. And, you know, I've lost 70 pounds in the last year, still got a little ways to go, um, not haven't been quite as focused on dropping the pounds as I've been on just increasing my own health and vitality and strength. And, um, you know, I, again, another thing you were doing 300 pushups a day for a while. Well, so am I. And, uh, you know, it, it's just incredible how, in addition to my normal ranch work and other things that we're doing, just making the time to do that. And it's so easy to do. It's like it, it's pathetic if we don't take the time to help ourselves be healthy. So uh, going carnivore and just putting a basic minimum fitness regime in place has just turned my life around. For the first time, I'm 46, I'm going to be 47 in January. For the first time in my life, I know how to influence the outcomes of my own personal health. It's not just eating less or skipping food or calorie restriction or whatever. I know that I am at my optimum eating carnivore, full stop. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of HBO is brought to you by Juve. Juve uses targeted red light therapy to help assist with the changes to light exposure in our modern environment. 
I've been trying out their desktop model recently and Sean has been using their full body model. I personally love the convenience of the desktop model for when I'm working on coaching plans or editing podcasts and just kind of generally sitting at the computer for long parts of the day. I can just set it and kind of forget it and it'll expose me to that red light therapy. Juve uses a unique Lego block design, so if you start small, you can always add units later to build a bigger model. If you think you might benefit from more red light exposure, check out some of the wide-ranging clinically proven benefits to red light therapy that are focused on things like recovery, sleep, performance, inflammation, etc. If you like what you see, consider Juve's third-party tested Class 2 FDA registered devices. Their options include door or wall mounts, mobile stands, and even a portable Juve Mini. Head over to juve.com forward slash HPO. That's J-O-O-V-V dot C-O-M forward slash HPO to see Sean's training video. Enter HPO at the checkout for a gift with your purchase. Now back to the show. Yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you actually brought up an interesting point too, like with just the exercise and stuff is because uh, I think of like, you know, most jobs nowadays, you're stuck in a desk or a cubicle and we've had like decades of folks just basically sitting around all day. And, uh, I would imagine, uh, a, an adaptive multi-paddock setup or whatever you want to call it is a little more labor intensive than most jobs is, is that fairly unique to the area too? Or is there a, a basic amount of like physical activity you should assume you're going to get by, by taking on an occupation like that? You know, it's interesting some of the least healthy people in this country are farmers. <laughs> they, they sit in their pickup trucks, you know, and here's an interesting thing. When I get into a big city for a meeting, these people are huffing and puffing up and down these sidewalks for miles a day. I'm 30 miles to the closest traffic light. I walk to my truck if I got to go to town or to a store. So, you know, quite frankly, unless we choose to make activity a part of our daily program, rural people and people in agriculture actually have the potential to have a less active lifestyle um, than people who would say live in a city and do a lot of walking as crazy as that may seem. And so, um, yes, it can be more active. You know, if you're a hardcore cowboy and riding, you know, 50 miles a day on a horse, you know, there's a certain amount of activity that happens. But if you're a grain farmer and just walk out to your tractor uh, and put it on GPS auto steer for 12 hours, you're probably not getting a whole lot of fitness in your program. Um, so it's, it's really about being intentional and keeping the primal moves. You know, it's interesting. I told my wife the other day, there is a downside to losing all this weight. When I went to get on my horse the other day, I damn near threw myself over the other side. <laughs> um, something about hauling 70 less pounds up into the saddle made that a little easier than I expected. So, you know, it's, it's just about being intentional with all these things. It's the personal responsibility that's been a thread through this entire conversation is it comes down to the choices we make, the way we spend our money, what we put into our mouth. And what's so interesting is I got an issue. I love food. I love to cook. Um, I'm not too shabby. My children eat what I make anyway. And it's like trying to figure out how to make keep food fun um, because my belly and body do not miss the foods that I used to enjoy, but my head does. And so when I'm sitting there thinking about, wow, I'd love to knock back a mocha and a cinnamon bun. Uh, and then I think, wow, I'd have somewhere between three and 15 minutes of pleasure. 
and I'm going to not feel good on it. I'm probably going to have major indigestion and headaches and, you know, I'm going to consume 2,000 useless calories that I'm going to have to really restrict myself to remove. It's not worth it. Feeling good and thinking clearly and being more fit than I was, that is worth working hard for. And the short-term pleasures of our diet, just don't cut it anymore. Just don't cut it. Trent, there's a lot of, you know, you talked about the, the typical farmer. He's got a, you know, a million-dollar combine, and, and we see a lot of ranchers. I mean, and I assume it's in the ranching business as well because they're, they're bought into the, you know, the inputs, you know, the herbicides, the pesticides, uh, if they've got crops are running along with their animals. How, how, is it, how do they get out of that? Because they're kind of trapped in, in a way. I mean, they've, you know, I'm sure they've taken out loans to buy the equipment and they've got this constant need to buy more fertilizer, more, more feed, more pesticide. How do, how, do they, how do you extricate yourself from that if you're already into it? Is it possible or you just got to be a guy that's going to start from scratch? No, it's very possible. And there's two approaches to that. The first one is on the existing model where they're just have a huge amount of depreciating, uh, rusting debt and, and value. A lot of these large grain farmers are cash poor, but asset rich, uh, and they're continuing operations based off the strength of their balance sheet and land. Uh, a lot of their, if they are in debt, a lot of their bankers are very reluctant to see them shift the needle too much because even a negative outlook that's consistent and in the comfort zone is better. You know, the old adage is the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Um, but, you know, they can shift. The question is, is do they have the courage to? Um, do they have the vision? And that's, again, as part of a savory influencer hub is I try to share my passion and get people excited about the difference they can make. You know, agriculture has spent the last couple of decades trying to get people out of food production. How do we get more food produced, more land influence with less human hours? How do we bring technology in and we do all the, and how do we remove the intelligence required? You know, if you grow up in a rural community and you have any brains, everybody tells you to go to the big city and become a whatever. And instead, what I encourage is back to getting the human engaged again, the observational, the nuance, the feel, as we would call it in horse training is the feel of the situation and, you know, bringing ourselves back into the picture as instead of just at the top of the totem pole, we actually are in a web where our influence is felt and other things influence us and bringing it back to un that understanding and putting people more into agriculture again. You know, many years ago, I had an old veterinarian about retirement age, about 30 years ago, tell me, that a dairy farmer could make more money leaning up against the fence looking at his cows than any other single thing he could do. And I've thought about that a lot over the last 30 years, and he was right. Because when you're leaning up against the fence, looking at your cows, you're not wasting time. You're observing their rumen fill, how they chew their cud, what their uh, fitness level is, their body condition. Are they comfortable laying down? Are they sore-footed? You know, are they in heat? Are they not in heat? Should they be in heat? Um, we look at the land and we look at the grass and how it's responding and which grass the cows are eating, what they're not eating. That is management and it's fun. You know, if we love cows and we love land, which I do, 
I enjoy that. And that's when I have my deepest insights is when I just stop working in quotes and actually become part of the environment rather than an observer of my environment. And that's putting the people back on the land, putting people back in nature, putting people back with animals and understanding the nuance of it all. That's when we have these breakthroughs and understand. And I encourage people to put back, you know, I, and I get about ag tech, especially in the region market right now, ag tech is all the rage and everybody's investing in ag tech. And it's the wrong thing to be investing in. The key is, okay, if it's a repetitive issue like shoveling manure, yeah, you can probably get a, a skid loader or, you know, a little robotic barn sweeper or something. Fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people engaged at an emotional level, at a thinking level, and participating in and spending the time out there. You don't know how your animals are because you ran a drone over them or you looked at their records on your computer. You know, we used to say, in, or they say in horse training, you know, a good horse is made with wet saddle blankets. That means they've been ridden a lot. That's what makes them good. And that's what makes us good as managers of the land is to be out there doing it. Now, the other piece of this is this is why I'm so excited about the whole solar grazing option that Silicon Ranch has given to us and that we hope to expand to all solar fields and then ultimately to as I mentioned earlier, supply services to grain producers for cover crop production to help offset the negative impact that they're having is because if we take training and we love to mentor young people and new people to ag and help them understand how to do these things and they can be paid to manage vegetation and they can either custom graze someone else's animals or they can invest in animals and they can start to build a food, agriculture, environmental services business with much less overhead. If I want to go out and buy 5,000 acres of corn ground at five to $10,000 per acre and $5 million worth of equipment, one, I couldn't do it. Two, there's not a lot of people that can. And three, if you had that much cash, you wouldn't invest it that way. And that's why, you know, we have crop insurances and, um, plant insurances and all these different ethanol subsidies and all these other programs that create an artificial reality around grain production. And most folks today don't want to talk about that. Um, and so working with a, a managed grazing program where you have a, a thinking, feeling, passionate human daily involved in their environment with their animals sequestering carbon, producing food, that's a phenomenal thing. And I believe that there is more opportunity in prescription grazing and grazing skill sets than there are in most other industries and opportunities. And you can get into it with only a modest investment. Uh, and there are people who would love to help other people get involved and grow these kind of programs. So that's just a genuine hope factor. Real impact, real positivity is achievable in our lifetime. It's achievable now, today. We're doing it. My adult children are involved in these programs that I'm just talking about. You know, my adult children are excited about grazing management and land management and being able to offer land services around regeneration as a career. 
and it is almost impossible for people to get into crop farming unless they are a low hourly wage employee or unless they're born into it. And with grazing management and environmental services outlook, there is tremendous opportunity. There are certification programs, there's mentorship programs, apprentice programs. People like me love to teach people about what we do and create opportunity. And organizations like Shell Energy Silicon Ranch is a phenomenal opportunity as they grow their organization across the country. They're already coast to coast with lots of land. They say uh, that the projection for solar is to hit 6 million acres by 2030. Now that's land that can all still produce food and is land for new people to agriculture, expanding operations like our own where we have adult children that want to come into the business. Um, young people, institutions, there are tremendous opportunity to grow that and cropping them those acres isn't real practical because of the solar arrays and um, you know the, the amount of all the infrastructure on a solar field. Grazing livestock is the best way to manage the land under a solar panel and by law these solar fields have six foot chain link fence around them so we've already got our perimeter fence in place. So it's just a tremendous tremendous opportunity that can really change things um, in agriculture while doing good in the environment and doing good in our rural communities. Yeah, great stuff, Trent. Can you tell me, I mean, because you've got, I think, it's, isn't it called the Cabrillo Ranch? Is that where you, you work out of? Yes, sir. And then I, I know you're involved. There's a company called Rep Provisions, which I, I when I met you at Paleo Effects, it was, you know, it was a, you know, a beef product. Can you talk a little bit about that, just so that people are interested in, in where they can find out more about you and, and follow your ranch and that sort of stuff. Because I, I, I'm, I'm following you on Instagram and I see you loading up the sheep and bringing them out to graze. And, you know, it's just kind of interesting to see, to see that stuff being actually done in real time. So tell me a little bit about those two things. Yeah, so Cabriejo Ranch uh, is our business, C-A-B-R-I-E-J-O ranch.com. Um, you can see a little bit about what we do on there. Um, and then Rep Provisions, eatrep.com, repprovisions.com um, is a joint venture between our ranch and a ranch in Oklahoma. Um, it's just so interesting how these things develop. We actually met at a savory training in Iowa in Colorado about a year and a half ago, and we just started sharing our mutual passions and um, just like, you know, it, it just, we travel a lot. We're interested in health and wellness. We're clearly interested in environment and food. And it's like, you know, when we're traveling, it's so difficult to eat the way we want to eat. And, you know, it's, um, I don't need another Cobb salad ever. And at the time I was still keto. I was like, you know, I'm getting tired of this stuff. It's hard to eat in airports and get into a hotel and there's nothing to eat except maybe some bar food and, you know, how do we put together products that fit our lifestyle needs and are highly portable and aren't full of junk? And so we just kind of collaborated. I've been involved in food production and product development for many years, uh, stemming back from our cheese making days. And so um, we put together some meat products that are shelf stable and highly portable. So they fit a traveling lifestyle very well. We put together some nut butters for those that still want to eat that way because the con trees growing on my partner's ranch 
um, produce pecans. And in eastern Oklahoma and western Missouri, there's a lot of pecans, and pecans are native. They're actually a really good tree for the environment. They don't use a lot of water like uh, almonds and so forth. So we have a really good source of local uh, pecans, which are also high fat. But then we're really focusing on the proteins. You know, we have the beef, uh, lamb, pork, and chicken um, in shelf-stable products. And, uh, and then we're looking at diversifying that into some other um, keto carnivore product lines. Uh, moving forward. So that's eatrep.com. Um, they're a savory hub as well. And uh, we're just pretty excited to be able to bring some of these products on. And again, it's about creating an attitude of abundance. So, you know, we're very close to a lot of the other companies in this space that are developing regenerative product lines. It's not a competition. It's really a rising tide environment. It's saying, okay, let's, let's work out our, our, uh, areas of influence and let's create a bigger pie for everybody rather than arguing over that small slice, much like we alluded to back to the grass fed versus grain fed beef and so forth. It's let's focus on the, the common challenge and solve for that and create more opportunity. Uh, so more people can eat well and have the confidence with how they're investing their food dollars is going to have the impact they want on the environment and in the communities where that food is produced. Hey, Trent, just uh, that rep is R-E-double-P. There's two, two P's in there, right? Rep provisions with two P's or just rep. Uh, um, yes, R-E-P. So it's eat rep, R-E-A-T-R-E-P.com uh, or rep provisions, just one P. Okay, there's only one P. Okay, my bad. Anyway, well, thanks so much for, um, uh, for coming on, Trent. Um, it's been wonderful. I mean, this is just, we, we, we've had a, just a series of different, I don't know if you ever listened to podcasts, but we've had a series of different folks in this space, and we just kind of think this is such an important message to get out there. And every time we get a little more knowledge, a little more nuance, and he certainly provided and contributed to that. Um, and so I thank you very much. I look forward to continuing to interact with you over time. I know we've talked about some things in the past. I'm still very much looking forward to, uh, moving the needle on our knowledge on how a meat-based diet actually improves our health. And, and I know you've you sort of talked about, you know, potentially helping us contribute to that. Um, Zach, anything else that you want to, do you want to discuss or, or what are your thoughts? Oh, that was a great conversation, Trent. You uh, certainly laid out a, a lot of cool stuff for our listeners to digest and co compare and contrast with some of our other holistic management episodes. So uh, thanks for taking out the time today. And if you have anything you want to share, like website, social media, anything like that, feel free to do so. And I can also put that stuff in the show notes. That's awesome. I've enjoyed talking with you guys. This is something I'm uh, quite passionate about. I don't know if any of that came through on this conversation, but um, I, I, I just enjoy it. It's my life and I love it. And I just appreciate the opportunity. And again, you know, Sean, we talked down at uh, Austin, Texas about you know, doing a trial and, and the offer still stands. We want to feed people. We want to feed them lamb and beef and, uh, you know, watch people's health improve. And, and uh, so when we get all that put together, we want to help. Yeah, we're, we're working on the, on the scientific end, trying to get the studies done. So I'm, I'm, I'm serious about that. I, like I said, and, and, you know, if it facilitates getting it done, just getting the information out there and, and really changing our landscape and learning about this stuff, that's great. And I appreciate your offer. Um, I think the most important point that we raised today is the fact that, uh, yes, we can do regenerative agriculture. We can scale it up. It's, a, it's not only sustainable, we, it's regenerative, and we can, 
we have more than enough land and the, you know we can increase the, the carrying capacity which i think is just you know critically important information absolutely 100 percent. awesome well thanks again for coming on trent thank you guys very much hey folks human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth we are looking to take on some new sponsors so if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.